morning. If you're new here, my name's Matt. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, along with Tim, I want to welcome you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Hosea. Uh, we've started a new series, and so we're about three weeks in. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, but I'd like to begin uh, with, with a prayer of thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, it's an opportunity. I mean, we should be thankful all the, all the time, but it's an opportunity to be thankful. And uh, our country, uh, in its wisdom, back in 1957, I looked it up, they established this day of thanksgiving. I mean, the, the history goes back uh, longer than that, but it's interesting. Uh, it, the Governor General of Canada said this uh, in establishing uh, this day, why we get a day off. So this is going to be a day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest with which Canada has been blessed. And indeed, that's true. And certainly, uh, our country is different than it was uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, but we, as the people of God, uh, will continue to give thanks to Almighty God for all the ways that he's blessed us. And so I want to read uh, Psalm 100, just to kind of remind ourselves of uh, what we are called to as a people. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So let us thank the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for all that you are and all that you've done for us. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, for the fact that we are created, have been created by God in your image. So thankful for the fact that in spite of our sin, you have made a way for us to be united with God. So thankful for the fact that uh, we in this place can come together and worship you freely. Lord, uh, I thank you for our country. I pray for Canada. I pray, Lord, that uh, this heart of thanksgiving to Almighty God would, would resound in the hearts of all who call Canada home. We know, Lord Jesus, that uh, there are many people um, who, who don't know you as Savior and Lord, and, and the greatest good for our country would be that that would happen. So we pray for that. Uh, we also know that just because it's Thanksgiving weekend doesn't mean that our hearts are overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, I want to pray in particular for those for whom um, it, was, it was a tough day. It's tough to be here. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of reasons to be thankful. Would you please minister to us in grace and compassion, uh, acknowledging that this, this can be a very difficult time for, for lots of different reasons. And yet we still have reason to be thankful because you are still our God. You are still at work in the different difficult situations of our lives. And because Jesus, you have made a way for us to have hope in every situation. The, the, the hope of life to come, the hope of, of a connection with God. And so would you, would you remind us of that uh, in the, the wrestling moments of our soul? Please uh, breathe life into us. And I, I pray even as we turn to this text, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us, your spirit would minister to us, and that we would uh, be comforted as a people and be really thankful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Hosea, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. Uh, I want to begin, uh, though, by just thinking about relationships, uh, dating relationships. I think one of the, the trickiest things early on in a dating relationship is trying to figure out uh, whether, in fact, you are a couple or not. Okay, this is, this is always a bit of a challenge. Um, 
for Don and I, uh, we, the first time we dated, we dated a couple times, but the first time, um, I had this question. We'd been seeing each other for, I think it was a month or so, and I was wondering, you know, I was like, are we, are we a couple? Are we together together? So I thought it'd be a great idea to ask this question. Uh, we were driving back from Cultus Lake, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask. So I said, um, so, you know, are we like a, a couple, like together together? And Don was like, mm, well, non-committal. So I said, well, uh, like, do you w- want to keep seeing each other? Like, do you want to keep kind of going out dating? Yes, she kind of nodded. Do you want to see other people? Uh, no, not really. Okay, then, I said. Then we're a couple. This is great. I'm going to tell everyone you're my girlfriend. This is fantastic. I'm so excited about this. Uh, by her silence, I, I surmised that she was really excited about this, too. She just didn't want to say it, you know. Uh, uh, in fact, I might have read that wrong because within a couple months, we had broken up. <laughs> she broke up with me. But together, we decided that we would not date anymore. So here's my point. I was not very clear. We were not very clear, and is often the case, about the nature of our relationship, like the status of our relationship. And I make that point because I think it'd be fair to see that for the, for the Israelites, they also were having some trouble getting clarity about their relationship with God. Okay, the book of Hosea is written to the people of God and really is about their relationship with God, our relationship still with God. But for the Israelites, they'd been with God for a while, like for generations. They'd experienced some amazing moments with God, some powerful moments. They'd professed great love to God and adoration and worship. They'd even entered into a covenant with God. But the truth of the matter is that they were still seeing other people. They were still worshiping other pagan gods. And in so doing, they were destroying the very heart of the relationship that they had with God. They weren't clear about it. Even though they knew God, in a sense, they didn't didn't really know him. Okay, even though they were in a relationship with him, there was no intimacy. Even though they were God's people, they were not united with him. And I think this is important for us to see today because this is is still a problem. This, This tension has always been a problem for the people of God. Many of us struggle to have a sense of genuine connection with God. We, we may be professing Christians, believe in Jesus, understand all that he's done for us on the cross, and yet there are times when uh, he feels very distant, when we struggle to have this real sense of, of connection with God. Now, what we, under, what we need to understand from our text today, what we're going to see is that that, that was never God's intention. He, he didn't create us as a people so that we would be like awkward camp friends. You know what I mean? Like where you, you know, if you go to summer camp, you meet someone in your cabin and you just hit it off. It's like, great. And you're doing everything together. You're doing uh, archery and riflery and boating. And you just, I mean, it's so great. You're on the same page. By the end of the week, you're best friends, right? Totally best friends. If you're my generation, you exchange addresses and write to each other. Uh, Today, you would do something. You text something. You do something digitally. You would say, look, we're going to be best friends forever. This is the best. But then after a few months, you, you, know, you don't live in the same city. You don't see each other. You don't connect with each other very much. And then later on, you might see this person at the mall or something. And, and all of a sudden, it's awkward. Because like, what are you? are you? Are you best friends? You said you were best friends, but you haven't talked with them. It feels very awkward. This is not what God intended. And yet sometimes this is how we feel with God. We, there was a time, maybe a camp, we had this amazing experience. But lately, we feel like we don't really connect very well. 
God did not intend for us to be awkward camp friends. He intended for us to have a genuine relationship with him. Like, like husband and wife. Like a, a marriage which is true and, and intimate and loving. We are meant to, to truly know him and be known by him. We are meant to be united with him in intimacy and love. We are meant to enjoy the fullness of his presence. And to understand ourselves primarily as people of God. So today in our text, this is what it's going to be about. A genuine relationship with God. There are three uh, key aspects, I think, that are highlighted here that were instructive for the people at the time and still are instructive for us. So that's, that's how we're going to organize our time together. Three things about a genuine relationship with God. And the first thing we see is this. A genuine relationship is one that is exclusive. It's exclusive. Here are the first two verses uh, of our text. This is God speaking to, to the Israelites, his people. And in that day, he says, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. Okay, we'll start with that. Just two verses. Now the issue here that, that God is addressing is this uh, confusion about the word Baal. Okay, you have to understand that there were multiple meanings for this word. Uh, on the one hand, it was the name of the Canaanite pagan fertility gods. There were a bunch of them. They called them the Baal. So that you would go and worship. Uh, but also the name Baal was just a word that meant uh, like Lord or master. So what was happening is that the Israelites, the people of God, they were sometimes referring to God with this word Baal. He's my Baal. He's my, my Lord, my master. But then also they were calling these other gods Baal that they were worshiping. And it was very confusing. It would be like uh, a man married to a woman and his nickname for the woman was Sweetie. Okay, Sweetie, Sweetie Pie, that kind of thing. But then he was also having an affair with a woman whose name was Sweetie. That, that would be, I mean, you wouldn't say the wrong name at the wrong time, but it would be confusing, right? When he said, sweetie, who is he, who is he talking about? And the confusion of the language mirrored the confusion that was going on in their hearts. And we've seen this confusion uh, already through the book of Hosea. Here's a couple verses that just kind of remind us of this confusion. Uh, verse eight said this, uh, speaking about, this is God speaking with Israel again. It says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal in their worship. And here's verse 13. Uh, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So see, Israel was seeing so many gods that they weren't even sure who had given them the gifts that they were enjoying, like who is their provider, and they often forgot about Yahweh completely. Now, at the time, they probably thought that more was better, right? More gods, more, more power, more divine help, more all the things about God that are good. Well, if there's more of them, then it should just be, it should be better. That, that was kind of the prevailing wisdom of the time, right? In the ancient cultures, they were, they were polytheistic. Many, many gods... And they would look to them for all sorts of things. God of, God of the sun, God of death, God of war, God of fertility. And they would worship all different gods, thinking that more, more is better. When, when Paul visited Athens, if you remember, he walked into the Greek culture and he basically looked around and said, boy, you guys have a lot of gods. Because on every street corner, there'd be a different deity that they would, they would worship. That, that's ancient cultures. And it exists still to this day, right? There are certain religions that are polytheistic religions. But for the most part, we would think that we've progressed past that, right? We aren't worshiping all these different deities 
throughout the day. But the truth of the matter is that our culture today still puts a very high value on multiplicity. Like many, many things, many gods, for instance. Now, when I say multiplicity, I don't just mean like the Marvel multiverse, you know, with, with multiple realities, multiple Spider-Mans. I think we can all agree it's super cool and we want them to make lots of movies about that. So that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about multiple religions, multiple gods, multiple sources of divine truth. And not just out there in the world, but this continues to be a problem inside the church. Now, we've already talked a lot about idolatry and that, that is a significant Challenge when you're putting something else above God, it's making it into an idol. But what about competing sources of spiritual truth? There are many well meaning Christians that have allowed other sources of spiritual truth to infiltrate their faith. They, they've seen it as, as a good, right? This is good, I'm worshiping Jesus, but also there are some other things that might be helpful. Right? And often it comes down to certain new age practices, perhaps. Even just looking at your horoscope or astrology or, or certain meditation. Uh, I'll give one example uh, that I've seen recently. A concrete example is numerology. Uh, numerology is the belief that there's a relationship between the numbers uh, in our lives that we see and some deeper mystical spiritual meaning in our lives. And people who are interested in numerology are always looking for numbers, trying to get some sense of meaning out of the numbers that tend to appear throughout their day. These are people who, who believe in Jesus, but it's this other little bit of some sort of deeper truth that, that they find beneficial, right? More, more is better, perhaps. Now, to be clear, uh, the Bible does have a lot of numbers in it, right? A lot. And some of them are uh, symbolic. They have special significance. But what we need to understand is that the Bible is a literary work, right? It's a book. So, so there's, um, there's words, there's sentences, there's paragraphs, and there's different genres of writing. And so within this, there are going to be certain things that symbolism that's used to convey meaning. For example, sometimes we find in here uh, symbolism having to do with animals. Uh, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God, right? And that's because we're meant to understand that he, he sacrificed himself like a sacrificial lamb. So it has a, a deeper meaning that's there. There are numbers also that are symbolic. We're told that the, the beast, right, the devil, is, the number 666 is associated with him or the number seven, the number of completion or the days of creation. But just like any book, the symbols, uh, they only make sense within the context of the book. Like the reason that they have meaning is because they're within a greater framework of meaning. You, you can't take those symbols and just look for them in your life and have them expect them to make sense. For example, just because Jesus is the Lamb of God doesn't mean we go to the petting zoo and look at the lambs and expect to get some sense of meaning out of them. That, that doesn't make sense. In like manner, just because there are symbolic numbers in the Bible doesn't mean that we're to look for numbers on license plates and signs. They're, they're just numbers. Okay? We don't need more sources of, of truth. We don't need all of these things. The reason, though, that it's a temptation is because these kinds of things feel very special. Like they feel they're compelling. If, if all of a sudden you have figured out or someone on YouTube or a book has, has explained to you how you can unpack the, the world around you and there's some you know, secret kernel of truth, man, that, that feels very significant. Because all of a sudden you have access to some other source of truth and it, it seems to have meaning in your life. What we need to understand in light of this text in particular, but really the whole revelation of the Bible, is that we don't need 
multiple sources of truth. We don't need secret sources of revelation. We don't need other gods, other idols, other spirits. All of those things actually draw us away from the one true God and the very heart of the Christian faith because Christianity is at its heart exclusive. One God, one truth, one hope. And here in this passage, God is reminding his people of this. His people have been very confused in their heart. He's saying, look, look, if you're going to have a genuine relationship with me, then uh, you want something intimate, yes, something pure, something powerful. If that's going to happen, we need to be exclusive. Okay? You, you, can't be, you can't be delving into or opening yourselves up to other spiritual experiences. It needs to be just like a husband and a wife, which is exactly what God is saying here. He's saying to them, look, don't even call me my Baal anymore. Don't even use that word. Just call me my husband because I'm the only one that you need. Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. He makes very clear. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making explicitly clear. Look, there are not many paths to God. There's one path. There are not many truths. There's one truth. There are not many saviors. There's not many. There's one. Now, the challenge with this is that in our day, this seems very narrow-minded. You might be here, and you may be thinking that that's the problem with, with religion or Christianity is that they feel like they have it all figured out, and they're the only ones. But it's not narrow-minded. It's not narrow-minded in the same way that a doctor prescribing the exact right medicine for a disease is not narrow-minded. He's just picking the, the one that works, or, or, a, or a mechanic ordering the one part that will make your engine run. It's not near mind. He's saying, this is, this is the one that's actually going to work. When Jesus says he's the only way to God, he means he's the only way that actually works. There are other spiritual avenues out there. The Bible's very clear that we live in a spiritual world. We don't see it, but there, there are spiritual powers at work. Satan and his demons are at work. And so if you are interested in other spiritual experiences, you're going to be able to find them. If you're interested in other supernatural experiences, other things that are happening, things that can't be explained, healings, those kinds of things, you, you can find those things, but that's not the issue. The issue isn't, are they there? Are they powerful? The, the question is, are they true? Will they actually connect us with the one and true living God? Only Jesus brings us peace with God through his sacrifice. Only Jesus has an answer for an evil in the world and in our own hearts. Only Jesus fills the longing we have for connection with God. So we need to be exclusive because he's, he's the only one who works. See, some of us are struggling, I think, with, with a feeling of distance, like, a, like we're not really connected with God. It could be, okay, it, it's worth thinking and praying about, it, it could be that that's because our heart is somehow divided, that we haven't been fully devoted to him, exclusively devoted to him, and it just it will never work that way. Okay, just, just like a husband and wife won't grow together in relational intimacy if one of them is cheating on the other or even if they're flirting with other people, it's just not, not going to happen. To be exclusive means that, that we are saying, no, I, I know that you are the source, Lord. You are who I need. The, the Bible calls Jesus the one mediator between us and God. And so for us to truly know God, we need to, we need to know him and be exclusive. That's the first thing we see in this text. The second thing is this, a genuine relationship with God is committed. Look at verses 18 to 20. God says, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, 
the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So there's a lot of commitment language here. See the word covenant, which is like an enduring agreement. Uh, the word betrothal, which today we would say uh, is like an engagement. If you see someone's betrothed, they're engaged. Uh, it's a bit different though, because back in those days, uh, betrothal was much stronger. Today, if you can get engaged and then you decide to not get engaged, it's not that big a deal. You have to usually give back the ring, give back any advanced wedding presents. That's about it. But back in that day, to be betrothed means you were, you were really united um, as if you were married uh, in every way, socially, legally, uh, but not physically. You, were, you weren't yet living together, weren't sleeping together. You would wait for about a year and then you would come together and consummate the marriage. But betrothal was a very strong commitment. And in the text, uh, it's mentioned three times. So the people hearing this would have known that God was talking about a very strong commitment. And in fact, it's a, a new commitment he's talking about that he will make with his people. And if you look at the language around it, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite grand. It's, uh, just take a look at verse eight again. Uh, you see, it encompasses creation itself. So this new commitment is like the whole world is being changed by this new unity with God and his people. Uh, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things on the ground, everything is affected. It's also an end to hostility. God says, I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land. Uh, it's a promise of security. I will make you lie down in safety. The details of the betrothal itself really are an extension of the promises of God. If you think back at the time of Abraham, God said, I'm gonna bless you. Okay, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. All those who curse you, I'm gonna curse. Those who bless you, I'm gonna bless. It's like this promise of abundant care and kindness. And look at all the words he uses there. I'll betroth you to me forever in righteousness, in justice, in love and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, this, this is an amazing commitment that God is making, that he's seeing we're gonna enter into. But here's the question I think we should be asking. Why does God even bother trying to make a new commitment with a people who clearly have commitment issues? You know what I'm saying? Like if you were God's best friend, right? Wouldn't you say, look, I don't think she's the commitment type, right? She keeps cheating on you. She keeps keep being unfaithful. Why, why bother why not have the love without the commitment? That's, that's what we tend to think these days. Okay, we don't need the commitment. All we need is the love. That's why people, for the most part these days, tend to live together rather than getting married right away because that's, what's, why do we need that? We just need to know that we love each other and that's the thing that's, that's the issue. Here's why God doesn't do this. He doesn't do this because a genuine relationship, one of intimacy, one of depth of understanding, it only comes through commitment between us and God and between us and each other. And you see this in the flow of thought. He, he does this big chunk about, about all the commitment, covenant, betrothal, and then look how it resolves in verse 20. He says, from that, you shall know the Lord. You shall know the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean you just know about God. It means that you will truly know him in a deep and intimate way. In fact, that word is used synonymously with the, the intimate love between a husband and wife. Okay, look at Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, same word, and she conceived and bore Cain. This is, the, this is the depth of knowledge that is being talked about here. And it comes from commitment. It's the fruit of genuine commitment in relationship. So why is that? 
Why, why, does, why does commitment lead to genuine relationship? Well, if you think about marriage again, think about that, that tension in our culture now of whether you just live together, whether you get married, uh, what is the difference between the, that, those two situations? In our day, uh, a lot of things are pretty much the same. Legally, right, if you're, if you're cohabitating common law or if you're married, it's the same. Uh, socially, there's not much stigma, it's, it's the same. Practically, physically, a lot of things are the same. The only real difference between those two relationships is the level of formal commitment. And people live together would say, well, look, we're committed, right? We love each other. What, what more do we need than that? Why do we need a piece of paper that, you know, someone in Victoria stamped to say that we are committed to each other? We don't need that. We love each other. A piece of paper isn't going to change that. But they have it backwards. The piece of paper in of itself doesn't mean anything. It's the commitment behind the piece of paper that makes all the difference. Because if you're getting married, you are vowing to be with that person formally in front of your family and friends before God. You're saying, you're saying look, through good times and bad, we are going to be together. This is the commitment that I'm making. And the commitment is the strength that then bonds that couple together through the difficult times of life. Because that's, that's really the test of any relationship. When things get difficult, will you remain? Will you stay? And the, the reality is that when you get married, you don't know what you're signing up for. After the, after the honeymoon phase, there are always things that, that bubble to the surface that you weren't expecting. For example, you, you may be married to someone and, and all of a sudden their, their past trauma in life, from past relationships, from their childhood, all of a sudden begins to reveal itself. You didn't even know it was there. They didn't even know it was there. And now it's wreaking havoc emotionally, relationally. And, and what do you do in that situation? It wasn't what you signed up for. It wasn't what you expected. What happens when there's betrayal? What happens when the feeling of love is gone? Those are the times where your commitment is the thing that forces you to double down on the relationship, to understand each other better, to support each other, to, to bond through the challenges. Your relationship deepens because the commitment doesn't allow you to leave. This is the same thing that happens between us and God. That through the difficult times in our commitment to be connected with him, we grow. In fact, this is exactly how God helps us to understand our relationship with him. Look at Philippians 1.29. Speaking to, to believers, Paul writes this. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The word that stands out for me in that verse is the word grant. It has been granted to you. To be granted is usually a, a benefit. It's a gift, right? If you get a grant, you usually get money. It's a, it's a good thing. But it says here that it has been granted to you, gifted to you, that you would not only believe you'd suffer. Why is it a gift? Because it's through the suffering that we know God more. That we understand the depth of his love. We understand the sacrifice of Jesus for us all the more deeply. It's because of the commitment, because we are saying we're, we're Christians, we're followers of Jesus, even though this has happened in my life, I'm gonna stay with him. That's the time that my my affection for Christ, my understanding, my relationship with him really deepens through the difficult time. Those who pull away when things get hard, they never grow in deep relationships. 
whether it's with another person or whether it's with God. That the commitment is part of the way that God actually grows in us a real sense of connection. Now the good news, the good news is that this commitment doesn't ultimately depend on us. This is great news because we've well established we are not great at commitment. We're not great at faithfulness. What we see in this passage, the real hope of it is not our commitment to him, but his commitment to us. In fact, you can see his, his activity. Uh, he has all these I will, the things he will do. Verse 17, God says, I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth. Verse 18, I will make them a covenant. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, steadfast love. God, God is the one who does it. Our role is simply to turn back to him over and over and over again recognizing that we, we need him and him alone, that we shouldn't be tempted with other, other sources of truth, we shouldn't lose heart, that in him we will find what we need, even if there's some, some dry spells, some difficult times. So commitment. Commitment is key to a genuine relationship with God. The third thing is this. A genuine relationship with God is inclusive. See what I did there? Exclusive. In, okay, no one's impressed. But listen, you'll listen, it makes sense. Uh, here are the last three verses. God says this, In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So once again, a very wondrous, grand picture of, of the future for God's people, of how things are going to end. Uh, that phrase, in that day, that's a phrase that comes up over and over again, and it's pointing forward to the day when Jesus will return. Okay, the day, of, the day when heaven and earth will meet, the day when the betrothal will finally be consummated. If you look in the book of Revelation, it talks about a wedding feast. We'll finally see Jesus face to face. All the wrongs will be made right. This is going to be a great day. I want to focus, though, on the last few verses because they're especially impactful for us. Look at the verse 23, last few lines. God says, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Now, this, think of this for the people who are hearing this for the first time, the Israelites. Uh, in the book of Hosea, uh, if, if you remember, God had asked Hosea, told him to do some very strange things to communicate to his people. He was told to marry uh, a wife of unfaithfulness, which he did, and then have children and to name those children some strange names. His daughter was named No Mercy. His son was named Not My People. And the purpose was to communicate to the people of God, look, this is now how I feel about you. Because of all your sin, all your unfaithfulness, you're no longer, my mercy doesn't apply to you, my favor, my grace doesn't apply to you. You're not my people anymore. You're just like every other people. Okay, this was the weight of the warning in the book of Hosea. But here, we see the other side to it, which we've already seen a couple of times. God still plans restoration. He's going he's to flip it. He's saying to them, look, there will be a day when you will receive mercy, when you will be my people again. This is the hope of the grace of God that we see woven throughout the entire Bible. And it's great news. Great news for the people of God the Jewish people. But here's the thing that they didn't realize. What they didn't realize is when God opened this door to grace, he actually opened it for everyone in the world. 
all, all different kinds of people. At the time, at the time, it seems like it's spoken just to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and it was, right? This was, this was to them. This is their God speaking to them. At the time, these kinds of prophecies were to them. They weren't, they weren't to the Amalekites. They weren't to the Canaanites. They weren't to the other people because these were God's chosen people. But let's jump forward to see how this resolves. We've already done this once. We have timeline. I'm just going to do a simplified timeline to remind us. We're 750 years before Christ, book of Hosea. This prophecy comes down. Everyone's wondering, how is this going to happen? How is this going to get resolved? How are all these things going to come true? When Jesus arrives, people begin to realize, actually, this is going to happen. How? Through Jesus, through the Messiah. He revealed the kingdom of God. He healed people, multiplied fish, and all sorts of supernatural things testifying, look, I am God. I'm the son of God. I'm here to save you. They didn't understand how until he went to the cross and then rose again. And they're like, wait, all these things that were promised in the new covenant, righteousness, yes, in him. Justice, yes, sin taken care of by his death. Steadfast love, clearly. Mercy, yes, faithfulness, he was faithful to the end. All of these amazing promises are revealed in Christ. But here's the strange thing. When Jesus left and he said to his disciples, all Jews, hey, go and tell people. They went and told people, but the people that accepted the message were not the people they thought. I mean, there were clearly some Jews who did, but a lot of Jewish people rejected this message. But a lot of other people, like Gentiles, like, like Greeks and Romans and Africans, they accepted the message. And it was very confusing at first. The disciples, they would go into the synagogues and the, the people, God's people, spoken to Hosea, they're like, look, this is the answer to the prophecy. Remember all the things you're excited about? And they didn't believe. The people who were destined for glory back here in Hosea, they, they didn't believe. But all these other people that it didn't seem like God was speaking to, they're the ones who were coming to faith. They're the ones who were receiving all of this. How do you make sense of this? Well, the apostle Paul makes sense of it by quoting Hosea. He points back and basically says, look, this was always the plan of God. I'm going to read to you from Hosea. You'll see at the end, uh, read to you from Romans 9, and Hosea is in there. So here's what, here's what Paul says, speaking about the plan of God's salvation. Verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? These are people who don't believe. They don't end up believing. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. These are people who do believe, who do come to faith. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not, was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. His point is this. When God opened the door of grace to his people, even all the way back here in Hosea, the door was open so wide everyone could walk through. Because if he was going to welcome back his people, think of it, they weren't his people anymore. He had told them, you're not my people, you're just a regular people. If any regular people can walk through the door of grace and be connected with God, then everyone can. Everyone, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Canadians, whatever we are, right? Most of us, most of us, are receiving the grace of God because of this door that was promised back in Hosea and came to fruition through Christ. 
So if you want a relationship with God, you can have it. That's what he's saying. It's, it's exclusive though. It's not just any door that's open. There's one door. His name is Jesus, but it's inclusive because anyone who walks through the door, hears the gospel, responds in faith, repents of their sin, they will have an intimate and deep connection with God by his power. That's what it says in verse 23. In him, in him we can say, you are my God. We need to hear this because some of us don't know God at all. Some of us are searching for some sense of connection with the divine, and there are a lot of options out there, but only one that is true. But others of us, probably many of us in this room who've been walking with God for a while, there's periods of our, of our walk of faith where we feel so distant, like we just feel like we're not connecting with God. It's good to be reminded that in those times, we, we shouldn't give in to the temptation to look to other places for help, thinking that more is better. It, it's not. We also shouldn't drift away thinking that God doesn't care. It's, it's very clear he does care. It's very clear he's done everything possible so that every human being on the planet, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your lineage, that if you hear the gospel, you repent of your sin, you will, you will have access to God. You will have a genuine, intimate connection to know that God is with you and for you. You don't have to wonder if God wants to know you or he wants you to know him. He's made very clear from the prophecies of the Old Testament all the way to the ministry of Jesus. That's the whole reason he came, so that we could, we could walk through the door that he propped open hundreds, thousands of years ago by now as a testimony to his grace and his mercy. So I want to pray that for us, that wherever we are this morning, that, that we would remember these things, pursuing an exclusive, committed, genuine relationship with the one true God. Let me pray that for us. Lord God, we are so thankful for, for your word. It, it reveals the things that are unclear to us. Lord, frankly, uh, it's, it's often unclear that you are with us and for us, not because you are unclear, but because in our minds, in our sin, in, in the noise of this world, it's just difficult sometimes to really believe that you're there. So we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that, that through your word, we can gain clarity. And so I pray for us as a people I pray that, that you would help us, for those of us who have faith this morning, to walk in faith in a way that, that makes very clear that we're devoted to you and you alone, that perseveres, Lord, that we're committed in that way, not by our strength, but by yours, and that we recognize that this is a message that is for everyone. And so help us to be faithful in that, to share the hope that we have. And I do pray, Lord, for those that are here who wouldn't yet call themselves people of faith or maybe just interested uh, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and minds to, to bring about questions or, or just kindle a sense of interest in who you are. It, Lord, that's what you've done for generations, and we thank you for it. Were it not for, for the ministry of your word and your son, we would, we would be alone, we would be searching still. So we thank you that out of love for us, you, you drew near to us, and I pray that, that each day we would um, experience the genuine blessing of connection with you and that we do it by your grace and by your power. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.